Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along We've got a complete winner of a guest here today for Spirit in Action, George Lakey and his new book, Viking Economics. But first, I want to remind you of a great event coming up on October 15th. It's a Northern Spirit Radio fundraiser held here in Eau Claire that Saturday with awesome speakers like Mike McCabe of Blue Jeans Nation and Matt Rothschild, former editor of the Progressive Magazine. Starting at 6 p.m. October 15th, we'll be serving up fun, profundity, and fundraising with Tasty Pizza to Boot. We hope you'll participate either in person or remotely, sending us your support. We'll be recording the event and sharing it in future broadcasts. Look on northernspiritradio.org for lots more info, including where to RSVP and about the eight musical performers that will be part of this event, and more. But let me not delay one moment longer in getting George Lakey on the phone. I've had him on the program before, and Viking Economics is his new awesome, awesome book. It's not an economics text, but a delving into the history and actuality that is the amazing societal powerhouse that is the former Viking countries, the Scandinavian countries and Iceland. Get ready to learn and prosper as George Lakey joins us by phone from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. George, welcome back to Spirit in Action. Glad to be back, Mark. And this book is such an exciting opportunity for you to be back. I can't tell you, it was not exactly a page-turner, but I was hungry for every page that I came to. And that's not every book that I read that I have that experience. Was it as fun to write as it was to read? It was, except for the last chapter. All the other chapters were just tremendous fun to write. There was such an abundance of material put in every chapter, and I was so determined to make them short chapters instead of long ones. And so it made it all the more fun to make the juice more concentrated, (laughs) and I enjoyed that challenge as a writer. The last chapter was the chapter that was actually hard for me to write because it's the chapter in which I apply or raise the question of how can we apply the wonderful things that they've been doing in the Nordic countries to our own country. The reason why it was tough for me to write that was because I didn't want to get people resisting the notion that we could apply good practices that we might find in other countries. And so I I wanted to just approach it in such a way that people would see the common sense of it all. So maybe we better start out by asking you, George, why you picked Vikings. You know, I'm from Wisconsin, which is, of course, home of the Green Bay Packers, and the Minnesota Vikings are kind of the enemy for us. Didn't you take into <laughs> account, didn't you take that into account in terms of book sales when you're considering us? 
I didn't, actually. (laughs) (laughs) What was on my mind was that although there are many theories about why the Vikings went as far as they went, the evidence, as I read it, is that one reason the Vikings did so much expeditioning and so far away, as far as Baghdad in the east and, of course, as far as North America, was that there was some sense of vision, some sense of adventure, some willingness to do the new thing. And I thought, well, isn't that characteristic now? And it's not that people now are trying to be Vikings. It's much more that there's a kind of received sense of opportunity and vision that supports people to be innovators. And the fact that they've innovated this whole thing called the, what economists call the Nordic model, is just such a, a wonderful invention for all of us all over the world to learn from. I thought, well, let's just imagine, even if it's a little bit of imagination, that there's still a connection between the Vikings a thousand years ago and today's countries that descend from the Vikings, which are Denmark, Norway, Iceland, and Sweden. So how different are these four countries? How similar? They're four autonomous countries. How close are they to the Nordic model? How much of a a thing is that? I would say that Denmark got a head start in developing it, and that Sweden and Norway then surged strongly into it in the 30s. Sweden kept developing it during World War II because it stayed neutral. But uh, Norway got swamped, of course, by the invasion by the Nazi Germans, as did Denmark, and so they got held back in developing it at that time. Iceland, on the other hand, was uh, starting to catch up. So it was interesting because these four countries, and Finland for that matter, which is not a descendant of the Vikings, but nevertheless um, is often considered part of the Nordic set of countries, they moved at different rates and, and different speeds and nevertheless learned from each other. And that's one of the things that I like because in my country, the states here in the U.S. often learn from each other. One state will forge ahead in some way, and the other states will say, oh, well, we could do that, because that seems to work well for them. And so this whole idea of states or of nations that have some affinity looking over each other's shoulders and copying the things that work intrigues me because we can have that in common with the Nordics. Well, I think we probably should start out with some kind of a glimpse of why we should have Viking envy. I think a lot of people in the United States don't because, you know, after all, America's great and besides that, we have to make it great again. We've got, I'm pretty sure, the number one big gluttonous, overbearing military. What have they got? Well, Norway has a military because it needs to keep up with its obligation in NATO, and so does Denmark. Sweden has always been remarkably advanced technologically, and so they are quite the uh, arms sales country, actually. I mean, not on the level of the U.S. Russia, but they still sell a lot of arms. So they have not subtracted themselves from the international system that most nations participate in of of believing in war. On the other hand, they are way more reluctant to participate in war than the larger states are. One result of that is that their own military budgets are quite small compared with that of Russia and the United States and China. And that's a big advantage to their economies because... There's always waste involved in a military budget, big-time waste. After all, you're producing stuff that you hope you never will use. 
And even if you use it, even if you use tanks and warplanes, it's not producing anything else. So it's not like making tractors or making uh, other things that we need and that produce still other things. It's a kind of a wasteful economic activity itself. So the fact that they keep their military budget small is one of the things actually that we could learn. So what I was really asking you, though, George, was why should we envy them? We have a military that's maybe the envy of some countries. What should we envy that the Nordic countries, the Viking countries, actually have? Well, they are free to go ahead and provide free higher education for everyone who is talented in those directions. And they also, as far as free education goes, provide way more support for vocational schools. Uh, In fact, vocational schools are free over there, uh, engineering schools. They support very strongly apprenticeship programs for people who don't learn their best in school, but instead of that, learn much more effectively in hands-on ways because the Nordics understand that people do have different learning styles, and so they support whatever the learning styles are in order to put people into jobs. They're very work-centered, very work-centered. They have higher proportions of their citizens in the workforce than the United States does, which was surprising to me in the beginning because I was beginning to believe a little bit of the propaganda. Well, if they don't let anybody starve there, if they're so determined not to let people be poor there, then they must reduce the incentive to work. But in fact, they have more people working in jobs than we do. And that's partly because they put such a big investment into training for jobs, and they also put considerable attention to making the jobs doable and sensible, and they further avoid as much as possible the phenomenon that we get very often in our country of square pegs and round holes. I run into so many people who are saying, well, this isn't really the kind of job that I would love to do. You know, it doesn't fully use my talents, but it was the job that was available. It was the only job that was available, that kind of thing. Or I'm afraid to leave my job because my health insurance comes through my employer and I'd have a hard time otherwise taking care of my family with regard to health insurance. That kind of thing, which keeps a lot of Americans not that eager to get up in the morning and go to work. Whereas in the Scandinavian countries, uh, in the Nordic model tries its very best to support people to work in jobs that are actually satisfying for them. And the payoff for that is that people are more productive. So in the international comparisons, it's been discovered that worker productivity is actually higher in those countries. And because worker productivity is so much higher, then they're able to ask themselves, well, how much do we actually want to work anyway? So they have much longer vacations than we do that it's uh, in most of the Nordic countries. It's the law that they have to have five weeks of paid vacation. And if you have a particularly stressful job, you might have more than five weeks of paid vacation. They also are experimenting now with reducing the 40-hour week so that there's entire categories of jobs where they're trying out having people work 35 hours a week or 30 hours a week but get the same pay, of course, and then see how their productivity operates. And in some categories of jobs, they found that people actually produced more in 30 hours than they did in 40 hours. So there's this very big emphasis on understanding the economy from the worker's point of view. 
and making a job not a punishment or not something you have to do because else you'll starve, but instead making a job a vital part of what it is to be an adult, what it is to have agency in that society, and what it is to be a really good citizen. You know, there's really no way I'm going to adequately address with you a lot of the very rich detail analysis statistics that are in the book, but I'm going to cherry pick a few topics that particularly intrigued me in Viking economics. Again, the subtitle is How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too. I highly recommend this book, folks. George Lakey has written an incredible book here, and it's maybe the ninth book that he's written. Most of the others are for niche market, for organizers, for organizations who are going to use it. This one applies to all of us, and it applies to a better future for the United States, which is why we have him here for Spirit in Action. So another of the points I want to cherry-pick they have high taxes there, and you speak about why that's acceptable. Here in the United States, it seems the promise that everyone has to make, uh, Republicans are all signing this promise, no taxes, you know, we won't raise anything. It is rather astounding that there are even very rich people who are in their upper brackets, which are much more extreme than ours, who support their system, want to stay in that country, want to pay their taxes. Talk about how people think about taxes there as opposed to here in the United States. Well, Mark, I included in the book some very fascinating interviews with multimillionaires in which they're asked about this tax question. And over and over, they say basically the same thing, which is, while it's not fun to pay very high taxes, and by the way, the very rich not only pay high income taxes, but they also pay a wealth tax on top. So each year, a percentage of their wealth is taken away from them. So it's not that they thoroughly enjoy that. On the other hand, they totally justify it. And the way they say it is, look, we get so much for our taxes. We don't have to worry about whether our kids will be able to afford sending. Maybe all our kids want to be doctors, and that's not just university. That's medical school (laughs) because medical school is free as well as university. Uh, or they all want to be lawyers or whatever. They all want to be ballet dancers or whatever because all of higher education is free. They pointed out in their interviews that there's tremendous economic stability. There's not the boom and bust adventurist approach to economics, which the U.S. is much more in favor of or has been guided by its economic elite to do. But instead, over there, they actually value stability. And the entrepreneurs in in those countries really appreciate that because they like to do long-range planning and they like to know that they're going to get a substantial income as a reward for doing that and not have to be worrying about, you know, like us in the Great Depression jumping out of windows because everything was falling apart. They keep their financial sector small so that it can't be the tail wagging the dog as it is in this country. So it is a different approach, but the thing is that approach, for example, universal health care, so employers don't have to worry about providing health care for their employees, that's all taken care of by the government, and it's taken care of so well that it's more efficient than our health care system is, by far more efficient. Uh, Norwegians, for example, pay about two-thirds nationally, they pay two-thirds per capita for their health care system compared with us 
So we're way overpaying for a healthcare system. And yet the Norwegian healthcare system, as with the Nordics, covers every single person, whereas in our country there's still tens of millions of people without health insurance. So these entrepreneurs who report satisfaction with paying very high taxes basically say what my dad used to say to me when I was a teenager and tempted to try to get something for cheap. <laughs> my dad would say, George, you got to learn you get what you pay for. So that's their economic setup. You pay a lot for a government that works really well because it takes paying a lot in order to get quality. You make the point in the book, George, that this Nordic model has evolved, and it continues to evolve. There's some thought, I think, from an American point of view. I, I think our attention span is way too short these days, and so we can't imagine all of the pieces that got inserted into the puzzle over the last hundred years. And it's it's taken a hundred years and there's been regressions and progressions in the Nordic countries as they move forward. You make the point that it's really taken them a hundred years to get to this point. Could you talk a little bit about the ebb and flow of history that gets them to what we call the Nordic model? Well, a century ago, they had tremendous poverty. In fact, that's why a lot of Nordic peoples came to the United States and came to Canada, right? Think of all the people in the U.S. and Canada and Australia, for that matter, who are around now who have Swedish grandfathers and Norwegian great-grandfathers and all of that. Yeah, those countries were hemorrhaging people because they had out-of-control poverty. And while they had the forms of democracy in the sense that they had parliaments and free elections, they were really pretend democracies because the economic elite always got its way. And the economic elite in those countries didn't care that there was poverty. And so they had poverty rates like ours or even uh, greater. Uh, what they had to do in order to get the political space to create what became known as the Nordic model was they had to push their economic elite out of directing the economy. So basically what they said to their economic elites, hey, look, folks, you've been directing our economy for as long as anybody remembers, and you've been doing a really poor job. There's so many of us, there were a lot of us hungry, many of us have no opportunity, and you've been doing a real poor job, so we're firing you. We're firing you as the leadership of the economy. And we're taking over. The majority of people are taking over now. And thanks very much for your contribution. We're not rubbing you out or something like that. We're allowing you to play a role, but we're going to control that role because it's now the majority that's taking over the country. <laughs> well, naturally, those economic elites or what these days, I guess, this country we call the 1%, they didn't like that idea that they were about to be fired, and so they fought back, and they, they did repression, they threw people in jail, they put down demonstrations, they called out the troops, they made life very tough for these majoritarian movements that were trying to assert democracy. People were killed, and so on, so it's it's really not a surprise. The thing was that the people in Norway, for example, and in Sweden who were struggling for the space to create something better decided to stay with nonviolence as their means. So instead of, as in some countries when there's been a revolution, you know, people turn to armed struggle, in the Nordic countries they chose to stick with nonviolent struggle. So they would do these massive strikes and boycotts and 
demonstrations in the streets and occupations and so on. And the result of doing all those very, very strong and powerful actions was that they made the countries ungovernable by the old governments that were backed by the economic elite. Basically what they were saying is, you are fired and we're just not <laughs> we're just not following your direction anymore, so leave. And those governments then fell, the old governments, the old conservative governments fell, and the new governments that took their place were led by the majority of people, the majority being the farmers and the workers, industrial workers, supported by many middle-class allies. And so what we have is the opportunity then to create something new, or else those countries would still look a lot like the United States in the sense of having endemic poverty, inability to handle climate crisis or any of the major things that are coming down the pike on us. They would still have a bad education, you know, or inadequate public education, which is what the U.S. is more and more moving into, a period of terribly inadequate public education and uh, people would still have to pay for higher education over there and they'd still have terribly uneven health care. They wouldn't have the pension systems that they have now. The Nordics consider it just revolting, the idea that there should be elderly poor people, that people should get to old age and be poor. They think that's a really revolting concept. But we do have that in this country. So I like to think of us as in a situation somewhat like the Nordics 100 years ago with a pretend democracy because it is the economic elite in our country, in the United States, that does get its way. So maybe we're where they were then, and we would like to fire our oligarchy as well, (laughs) (laughs) take over the country. They have the majority rule here. I love democracy myself, and and so why not assert a democracy and then be in a position where we could adopt whatever features of the Nordic model that we'd like to adopt. Is there any point in the United States where you think we were on the same track with the Viking countries? Oh, very much so, very much so. In fact, in the early part of the 20th century, It was characteristic for up-and-coming labor organizers and farmer organizers of there to come to this country to catch up on the latest, to find out what's really cool, what's really effective and snazzy about organizing for, you know, people power. They learn things here from our movements and then go back home and put those things to work. So in some ways, we were very on a parallel track in the early 1900s. And then, of course, in the 1930s, during the Depression, we had enormous movements representing the majority in this country. That was a period of great progress for us. That was when we got Social Security. They got Social Security. We got Social Security. And so there were huge uh, moments of progress in our country, and they were brought to us by the popular movements, by people engaging in strikes and boycotts and all those nonviolent tools that have been invented over the years. But then we got held up partly by World War II, being swept into that war, and we got kind of carried away with that. Whereas they, before World War II came, they were able to fire their economic elites and take over their countries. And we were just a little slower at that. And so when World War II came, uh, we weren't already a majority will country and we hadn't actually made all the changes that we have on our minds to make even though as i say under franklin roosevelt we did make some changes that were really important
maybe it'd be a good moment to look at a snapshot of what their situation is like right now versus what ours is in the United States in terms of healthcare, literacy, happiness, the broad statistics that indicate that they're doing well, that they do have something to envy. Can you give us a few of those snapshots? And I'm going to count on people to read Viking Economics to get the full set that you lay out in there. One of the things I love about being an American is how much we value individual freedom. I think one reason we get sentimental about babies is because we see in babies such potential, and we really want the babies in our families and the children in our families to have maximum freedom. And that's one of the ways in which the Nordic countries excel. So children, for example, have the advantage of affordable child care at a very, very early age. And so they can get a rich environment. They're not neglected because they have publicly provided affordable childcare. And for that matter, even from the get-go, because there's paid family leave for both mom and for dad, the babies get the advantage of their own parents taking care of them in the, that precious early year. And so the children are really given tremendous attention and they have these terrific public schools. And people have the permission to leave public school at age 16. And some do because they are operating on basis of freedom, right? And they say, hey, I'm eager to get into the workforce. I'm, I'm bored by school and I really want to get into the workforce. And so they do that. But let's say after a couple of years, they say, well, hmm, I'm not finding a job that really satisfies me in the workforce, and it's partly because I haven't developed my skills enough, so what do I do? So they have the freedom then to develop their skills more for free. They can just go in, back to school. They can go to vocational school. They can go to the school that uh, leads them to university if they want to. And let's say they get skills there that they want and cherish and, and get a job that they really like so much better. But 20 years later, they're saying, oh, my job is really boring. I'm no longer relishing this job. I think I'd rather get something else. Then they can get vocational counseling for free and support for figuring out what would be a really challenging and wonderful job for you. And then they can, again, get free education to support them with new skills and job placement so that they can get a, a different kind of job. All this time, of course, their health care follows them wherever they go, and they have the assurance of that pension at the other end of their work life, so that it gives them a chance to experiment and adventure with things that don't work out. As you say, they can try being an entrepreneur, see how that works out, because even if they fail, it doesn't make them a failure. But the result of that is way more startups over there than here. So what the Nordics are really doing is giving maximum individual freedom to people to develop themselves and create a satisfying life for themselves. And that's something I would just wish for every, well, let's say every 14-year-old in the United States, that they might be able to no longer be haunted by a specter of insecurity or already be worrying about, am I a loser, am I a loser? but instead be able to look ahead in their own lives and say, I really have support in my life to find myself and get the skills that I want and get the job that I want. I really would love that for every American 14-year-old. 
and we're going to find a lot more out about the Viking economies. The book is Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too by George Lakey, joining us today for Spirit in Action. This is a Northern Spirit Radio production. On the web, that means you'll find us at Northern Spirit Radio. Dot O-R-G, and that's O-R-G like an organic, not commercial. On that site, you'll find more than 11 years of our programs for free listening and download. You can track down the stations where this program's carried. You can find so much more about our guests. There's also a place to post comments, and we really do value two-way communication, so your comments are welcomed whenever you visit. There's also a place to donate, and that is how this 100% full-time work is supported. It's supported not by the government, and it's not by the corporation, but it's by you, the listener. So please do donate when you visit, too. Even more important, though, I'd say is to support those local community radio stations. Alternative media and local media are so crucial in terms of giving us a choice of information and of music that we otherwise would not get. So please start by supporting. Supporting your local community radio station. George Lakey's here. I'm picking and choosing topics from his book, Viking Economics, because there's so much in there, and it's a, a gripping, gripping read for me. It really helped shift my worldview. And George, I wanted to address one item that made the whole book worth it for me. You pointed out, I'll let you phrase this and flesh it out, but you pointed out that they made their advocacy for these programs different than what we chose in the United States. In the United States, a number of our programs are going to be caring for the poor. You know, we have to help these poor people or feed the hungry people. Those are important things to do, and we don't want people to be left out in the fringe. But that meant that the advocacy is either in terms of charity for them or in terms of a small group of people saying, hey, we're starving, and they have to advocate for themselves. In the Nordic model, they took a view, I think, that maybe could be characterized as, what's good for our community? How do we support our community? You want to flesh that out? Sure. They did try the model of charity for the poor and creating programs for the poor. But what they found was that programs for the poor are poor programs. (laughs) They don't actually work very well. And when we take a broad look around the globe, we see that no country has abolished poverty through programs for the poor. It simply doesn't work. And it's not that it hasn't been tried. In our country, for example, under President Johnson, we tried a war on poverty and didn't get very far at all. Uh, It seems that poverty is not something that can be dealt with that way. But what the Nordics did instead was, because they just really, really dislike poverty, they are egalitarians, like Americans love equality. Well, the Nordics love equality. And they said that the whole idea of having 10% or 20% or whatever of poverty, (laughs) I sometimes felt as though they were saying, it's so 19th century. <laughs> who, who, need, who needs the Charles Dickens narrative anymore? We don't need that. Advanced countries don't need that. And so what they did was went ahead and abolished poverty. And they did that mainly through, as you say, universal programs rather than programs that are addressed to the poor. So, for example, healthcare. Hey, let's make that universal so that whoever you are, whatever your income you are treated the same with regard to health care, which is you get excellent health care. If you, for example, happen to live 
north of the Arctic Circle. Norway goes very far north. So there you are with not many people around and not advanced medical facilities. You're, it's okay for routine things. But there you find yourself with a brain tumor, and the place where the surgery can be gotten that really will to handle it is a whole other end of the country down in Oslo. Then the health service flies you to Oslo so that you can get the surgery that you need. So it's not about means, it's about health care is a right for everyone, everyone should get that. So that means right there, that's a big factor because health care is related Healthcare from when babies are born, in fact, all the way through, is related to whether people remain in poverty or not. But that's only one of the many measures. Another measure is a commitment to full employment. And I described a little bit ago about the very, very strong support they get to make it possible for everyone who can work. I mean, there are people who simply are too disabled, they can't work. But for everyone who can work, to be able to have a job. So that right there, I mean, most of our poverty would be gone if people had good jobs. The reality is that there are plenty of jobs that Americans are working in today that keep them in poverty because the jobs don't even pay enough. And then another universal program is to make sure that housing is wholesome and solid and decent housing. And so the housing market is influenced by the the country in each case. Very often through co-ops, there's a it's not like they want to put all their eggs in the basket of the state because that could be problematic too. And so uh, something like 60% of the housing in the capital city of Norway, Oslo, is co-op housing. Adequate housing for all. They, they decided years ago that there shouldn't be any slums and there are no slums. And so everybody should get good housing, everybody should get good food, everybody should get all these things. And if you assure all those things for everyone, then that actually results in you having virtually no poverty. And so it's it's a it's not a one it's not a one bullet solution. You know, it's not like you do one thing and you get rid of poverty, but if you do multiple things and provide them in a universal way, Oh, here's another example, Mark. In the beginning of their providing health care for all, they couldn't afford, uh, because they've always been a way poorer country than we have been. So in Norway, even though their medical profession said, look, we can't really take care of the health of people in a free market way. We have to do it differently. So they did set up this national system that was universal, but they couldn't afford dentistry because Norwegians notoriously had bad teeth. So what they did was subsidized milk because they found that working-class people were not drinking as much milk as middle-class people and rich people. So they subsidized milk for everyone. So everyone could pay less for milk. That meant everybody could drink a lot of milk. And then by the time that they built up more money for the healthcare system so they could include dentistry, there weren't as many people with as many rotten teeth <laughs> because they had been having calcium in the meantime. So it's just one example of the many ways that they look at a problem. They say, oh, people near the bottom of the ladder are having this problem. What's a universal provision that we could make that would take care of everyone? Public transportation should be available for everyone at a low subsidized rate. 
Yes, it does mean that the rich can get on that subway for a reduced rate, but it also means everybody can get on that subway for very little money. And that means that there's not one way for rich people to go to work and another way for poor people to go to work, which as soon as you do that, you end up with inferior services. You end up with parts of our country, for example, where there isn't even adequate bus service much less, you know, the subway kind of service that's that's, uh, deserved in many more dense populations because public transportation should be available for all. So that whole business, Medicare for all, Social Security for all, everything for all, is, it turns out, based on evidence, is uh, the only way to pretty much abolish poverty. There's a statement you made several minutes ago that my ears perked up, and I wondered if it was true. You said Americans love equality, and I certainly understand that for a certain element of the population or in certain respects, Americans do feel equality is great. Economic equality, though, large number of Americans are very conflicted about. They like to have their rich people that they can oogle. They like to think that I could be one of those people who's better than I am now. And they don't value equality to the same extent as perhaps the Norwegians. You having been married to a Norwegian woman and have relatives there and all this connection with the country, is there a different feel about equality in their eyes to what we have here? Yes, I would say so. I mean, there is also there a certain amount of attraction to rich people who have celebrity lifestyles, for example. There is, you know, there are gossip columns and that kind of thing. So there's a certain amount of that. Oh, what would it be like to be rich? But in general, I would say it is a stronger theme in the Nordic cultures. Equality is a stronger theme than it is here. It is, I think, important here. People want equal standing before the law and so on. So there's a a lot of ways in which Americans do like equality, equal chance. Conscription was about an equal chance to fight in the war or not, you know, rather than just a, a selective chance, just sending poor people off to war. So we have that tradition, but it's not as strong, I would say, in the Nordic countries because it's not reinforced by the economy. The striking thing is, Mark, that there's actually more social mobility in class terms in the Nordic countries than here. Mm -hmm. It used to be just the opposite. A hundred years ago, there was way more chance for poor people. As you say, some poor people look at a rich person and say, that's what I will be someday, right? Or that's what I aspire to. But the reality is that in this country, we've become way less socially mobile than they have in Northern Europe. And in the Nordic countries, especially people who are born nearer in a, not poor, but like a working class, you know, sort of solid spot, have way more chance of moving into the middle class or even becoming rich than people do in this country. So they've really turned that around. And I think it has to do with these specific economic measures that they've taken once they fired their economic elite and decided to do something different. (laughs) I was also wondering, George, about the role of religion. Of course, both you and I are Quaker, and that's a certain worldview and motivation and impetus to change the world. Most of the Scandinavian countries, I guess, have been Lutheran, including an official Lutheran state church. 
Has religion been an aid, a detraction from this kind of movement? There's definitely double-sidedness there, Mark. On the one hand, in gathering people into a strong enough political force to fire their economically, it was a big help that practically everyone was Lutheran and had that. So many people were of that ethnic background. And, and so it was easier for people to feel the solidarity. You know, I can trust you to be in the struggle. You'll be there for me because you're so much like me. That was an advantage. On the other hand, the disadvantage was that diversity actually supports economic development. This is something that corporate consultants are constantly preaching to the leadership of corporations in the United States. They're constantly saying, look, your upper ranks of managers are way too from the same background and they look the same and they're mostly men and all that. And that's a problem because without diversity, you're not going to get the creativity and the innovativeness that you need to be successful as a corporation. And that was true for them. And so it was very tough once they opened the space for democracy, real economic democracy over there. Then they, for economic development, I mean, they did a lot of economic development, but it, they had the downside of not enough diversity. So what's very exciting in the last 20 years is more and more opening of the gates to immigration. And so now way more people of color, like one in seven Norwegians was is foreign-born, for example. Sweden took in way more Syrians and others fleeing these Middle East wars that we've been having. They took in more per capita than any other European country. So there's been a changing of the color and character and religious background of those populations lately. But then that has set up a different kind of dynamic, yet another dynamic. It's one reason why I'm so happy to write an entire chapter on immigration and diversity, because it turns out that there's a fair amount of racism sitting around in those countries, and there got to be a pushback on the part of people. And it was often expressed religiously. You mentioned that you and I are Quakers, and we like to think that, and in fact deeply believe that there's that of God in every person, whatever belief system they're caring about. But there are a lot of folks in the Nordic countries who were not taking that view and were instead believing Christianity is the one right way to go and what are these people from Islamic countries up to. And so there got to be a kind of Islamophobia that was operating. So I write about that quite a lot. The Lutheran bishops, for example, in Norway, publicly go to mosque service, go to services in mosques and do other things of that kind in order to try to reduce the amount of Islamophobia that gets kicked up over there. But that is a problem. I would say their racism isn't nearly as strong as it is in this country because they didn't have those centuries of slavery that so infected our culture as white people. But nevertheless, it is real and it's need to really lean on the Nordic model in order to fight that. And so one big advantage, for example, of having an, the institutions that prevent poverty is that you don't have the reinforcement of people coming into the country from Africa, from Middle East and so on, and then going immediately into a kind of poverty situation and 
you know, the, the doors to university are closed because they can't afford them, that kind of thing, because they can. They have all these tremendous supports for being able to integrate into the larger society. And so that that is working for them. But it's definitely taking a lot of attention on their part in order to be able to both come into the global picture and not be so ethnically and religiously peculiar <laughs> and one of a kind. So they're diversifying on the one hand and also experiencing some of the tension of that on the other. The benefit for them, of course, though, is more creativity and greater economic productivity by the fact that they're getting a more diverse workplace and diversity in their management. One of the things you mentioned something about in one of the chapters, and I, again, I haven't memorized all the words, although it might be worthwhile, because this is such a rich book. Viking economics is such a powerful concept for the pieces that we could implement in the United States. One of the issues was Muslims coming into the country who weren't used to educating their girls. They had to make a strong stand. They searched for solutions, and they came to a strong stand, I guess, saying that essentially, if you're going to be in our country, this is one of the values, universal education. Girls get educated as well as boys. Could you talk a little bit about that process? Because that's some people would say that's imposing our religious worldview on the other religion. That's right, Mark. That was a huge debate in the beginning, and the people winning the debate in the beginning were saying, look, we want to be multicultural in the sense that we respect their cultures, we want to assure them they can live in our country and still keep their own ways of life and so on. But then what they were finding was it wasn't working, that their girls, the daughters in the families where the family was coming from, a part of the world where girls didn't get educated, boys did get educated, then the girls weren't being sent to school. And then immediately the girls were at this huge disadvantage for living in Norway because they couldn't, they couldn't relate to Norwegian society as it was and as uh, Norwegians intended it to be. So they were being locked out of the Nordic model, actually, by the choice of usually the dad. And so the debate continued, and more and more research was being done to find out how much isolation and exclusion was going on as a result of this, what was intended to be simply respect and you know being good to folks. And they decided, no, this is actually not fully respectful. For one thing, it's going along with disrespect within their culture toward their girls and their women, but also it's not respecting ourselves. Genuine respect toward others comes from people who do respect themselves. Else, something else is going on that's a little bit sick. So we're going to say, we created this country, we created this society, this is the way it works. You should certainly worship your God the way you want to worship your God. You'll find this country is actually far freer than the country you came from. <laughs> For example, um, in the international rating on press freedom, all the Nordic countries have far more press freedom than countries like Somalia or Burundi or, for that matter, far more press freedom than we have in the United States. So those countries value that press freedom, and they're not going to give that up for the sake of opening their doors to other people. So what they did was they, they came up with this other thing, as you say, which is, look, 
all children until the age of 16, if they're able to benefit from schooling, have to go to school. And your daughter's just going to have to go to school, and that's that. And if you don't like it, you have to go someplace where your daughter is and doesn't have to go to school. And maybe that's back to your home country, but you told us you didn't want to do that. So they make these, they forced people coming to make those hard choices. And it was a result of trying the more lenient way first and then realizing that that wasn't, it wasn't actually working. As I said early on, there's so much in this book I really would love to cover. I want to mention just a couple topics, and I'm going to keep your comments brief, George, because we could spend several hours on this. They handle prisons, jails, different than we do. What do you think about that? Well, they consider deprivation of freedom to be itself an enormous punishment. That's how much they value freedom. They say, whoa, you take freedom away from people, you are punishing them right there. So there's no reason to do additional punishment. In fact, since incarceration is itself the punishment, then the rest of the treatment of the prisoner needs to be all about positivity, needs to be all about job training and marketable skills. It needs to be maybe uh, educational background. There may be suffering there that's gone on that needs to be dealt with. It needs to be therapy if there are therapeutic issues, addiction recovery if that's what's going on. There needs to be reconciliation with the family. People are in, usually incarcerated close to their family so their family can visit easily and uh, social workers are often busy helping the family and the offender to be able to get back on the same track. So there's multiple forms of treatment that are offered these prisoners who are then put on a graduated program in which they show their rehabilitation step by step by step through behavior and then they are allowed, for example, to go home for Christmas because they believe in vacations from punishment <laughs> and uh, reconciliation with the family, reconciliation with the community. If they need job placement help, not only job training but job placement, they get job placement help. And the st attitude of the state is, look, we want you to be a taxpayer. This country doesn't work if we don't have a lot of taxpayers. So we don't want you to be a drain on us. While you're sitting in prison, you're a drain on us. That's why we keep prison sentences short instead of long. And this is your time to work very hard. Yes, you've done rape in your background. Yes, you've done murder in your background. Whatever it is, there's no way we're going to lock you up for decades and decades and have you sit here at taxpayers' expense. We are about restoring you to the community so you can be a taxpayer. <laughs> and the result of all this, Mark, is their prisons are not schools for criminality as ours are. Instead, they are actual rehabilitation centers, and people go home and don't offend again. They have the lowest incarceration rates in Europe, uh, in Norway, and there's no comparison between returns of criminals who offend a second time. One time is enough because they, they get it then. There's a number of topics, as I said, that we are not going to discuss today, George, but uh, let me just put them in our listeners' minds. We could talk about Iceland's experiment in recovery and how they chose to do what they did. This has not been a, a straightforward marching toward the Nordic model. People have gone back into neoliberalism and bounced around, and, and they've tried the other paths, and they found they didn't work. So Iceland is certainly one of the places we could look at for that. 
We could talk more about military spending. We could talk about implementing these in the United States, and people just have to read the last section of Viking Economics, how the Scandinavians got it right, and how we can, too, to get some of the details that you address so cogently there, George. There is one thing I wanted to call to people's attention. Yeah, I mean, you've got all kinds of recognition you've received over the year. Martin Luther King Jr. Peace Award, Paul Robeson School Justice Award, Ashley Montague Conflict Resolution Award, Peace Educator of the Year back in 2010. But the one that I wanted to raise up for our listeners is the award. It's called the Giraffe Award for sticking your neck out for the common good. <laughs> <laughs> Who gives that out? <laughs> the Giraffe Foundation, which was set up precisely to give that award once a year. <laughs> and people can't see you, George, but you're a tall man. You're you're kind of stretched out, so you got a lot of neck to stretch out there. And you, and I have a lot of neck. <laughs> so you could say by birth, thanks to my parents. I had a head start on getting the giraffe away. <laughs> and a neck start, yes. <laughs> George, you've been doing such incredible work for so many decades. Movement for a New Society uh, is part of that training for change. It's just an incredible organization which you helped co-found and led for 15 years. You've been an inspiration to so many of us, and this book is really creme de la creme, Viking Economics, how the Scandinavians got it right and how we can too. Folks, you're going to enjoy, you're going to learn from this. Your life is going to be better because of this book, and I heartily encourage you to get it. And I, if you have an opportunity to sit down and have a meal with George, your life is just going to be a little bit better. So thank you so much, George, for being this witness for so many years, for giving us information that helps us improve our lives, and for joining me here today for Spirit in Action. You're so welcome, Mark. Thanks for asking. And folks, there's going to be bonus excerpts from this. I talked to George quite a bit more than 55 minutes. You'll find those at northernspiritradio.org. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance today. Please join us next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.